Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. <clears throat> my name is uh, Chris, uh, for, one of you, for those of you who don't know me, and uh, it's usually my joy to be able to be up here leading with my friends in the worship ministry, uh, but I have the exciting opportunity to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. So if you've got your Bibles uh, in front of you, go ahead and pull them out, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, continuing on in our series, uh, Take Aim. And, and the whole point of this series each week is to, is to really make sure that we're aiming our lives at the target. And, and so what is the target? The target is what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. What are the qualities or the marks or the attributes of somebody who is seeking to live and to follow as a disciple of Jesus Christ? And so this first one that we're looking at is draw near to Christ. And so this week we have another uh, step in that of learning what it means to draw near to Christ. Hopefully we can add some clarity to that for all of us as we strive after that together. So like I said, Hebrews 4, uh, go ahead and turn there in a moment and I'll be with you just a second here, but while you're turning there, um, I just want to ask you this question. Are, are you a trusting person? Like, do you consider yourself someone who trusts easily or well? Uh, I saw this uh, poll this week. It was, it was a Gallup poll that said that currently Americans have a record low level of trust in major societal institutions. So things like banks, uh, medical system, healthcare, uh, government, news sources, all of that. I mean, this probably doesn't surprise us, right? There's a lot of us that we just don't trust the institution. We don't trust the man. Uh, and what they said is that, that that record level low of trust is continuing to decline at a rapid pace. And the reason for that is like, this information that we live in has kind of become the misinformation age a little bit. And, uh, and, and maybe some of you have been personally affected or, or seen the injustice that happens and, and the ways that these things can happen, whatever, whatever it is, the trust in our society is rapidly declining. And, and to take it a step further, that poll said that less than one third of all Americans have, quote, a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in the church or in organized religion. Less than one-third of all Americans trust the church. And unfortunately, personally, I can say that I've experienced this firsthand, and maybe some of you have as well, as people that we know and love who have been uh, following after Jesus have at some point been injured or hurt by something that happened at a church or by somebody in a church that has caused them to completely turn their life away and pursue something completely different in the world, right? Right? It's like um, this quote that I read this week that said, uh, trust is gained in drops, but lost in buckets. Like over time, slowly gaining trust by a little drop at a time, but all it takes is one thing and boom, that bucket gets dumped out and we've lost all trust. And so there's a crisis that is brewing here because as our lack of trust is increasing, so also are our needs Right? If we look around, there, there's needs all over the place, financial needs, there are relational needs. Every person in this room is here this morning with very real needs. We need help in our marriages, we need help in our parenting, we need help in our schooling, we need help in our mental health, we need help in all of these different things. And, and so our, our needs are increasing and also our lack of trust is increasing. And that's creating a bit of a crisis. And so as people and as institutions fail us, where do we even go with these needs that we have? Like, who could we possibly trust to bring these needs and these burdens and these uh, things that we're carrying to? Who, who could we trust in that? And before we get into the answer to that question this morning, um, I, I just don't want to miss the reality that if that statistic that I mentioned earlier is true, that, that more than two-thirds of all Americans don't trust the church, 
that the reality is, is that there's probably some of you even in the room here this morning that don't trust me <laughs> or don't trust our church. You're skeptical. You're, you're questioning. You don't maybe even trust. Uh, you're skeptical about this book that we're even about to open up together. And please, please hear my heart if that's you in this place this morning. Like I, my hope, my desire, my prayer this morning is not to win back your trust uh, in me or in our church even or, or even in any human institution. But my hope and my desire is just to point all of us to the only one who can completely satisfy every need that we have and who knows us more deeply and more fully and has experienced the hurts that you have experienced and knows and wants to be your help in your time of need. And that is my hope this morning as we look to Jesus in that. And so all of that being said, um, let's, let's open up God's word. Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to begin our reading this morning in verse 14. <clears throat> Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Lord, I, I just confess this morning that I, I need your help. I am so aware of my weaknesses, so aware of my insufficiencies. And um, God, I'm just asking for you uh, to move in this place, God. Let these words that I speak not be mine, but yours. Um, let, let, let our hearts be open and ready to receive what you would have for us. God, we, we desperately need you and we are leaning into you and we are looking to you now as you speak to us, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so uh, this, these three verses can really be summed down and, and summarized in one short little phrase here that hopefully will be catchy and familiar and memorable to you throughout this message and throughout this week. But it's this, confidently draw near to Jesus to access his help in your time of need. Confidently draw near to Jesus to access his help in your time of need. And so from this passage, these three verses that we read, we're gonna see three very clear qualities or characteristics about Jesus that should give us a confidence uh, or a trust to draw near to him in that. And so let's dive in that together. First, his authority is absolute. Hebrews 4.14, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the son of God, Jesus is our high priest, our great high priest. Now, the original audience of this letter would have a very clear and robust understanding of the role of the high priest. But that might be a little bit unfamiliar to some of us here in the room. And so I'm gonna just give us a quick overview to bring us up to speed so that we can understand in the same way that they understood when this letter was written to them. So in the beginning, Genesis 1-1, God created the heaven and the earth. We're gonna go through all the whole Bible here in just a moment. Just kidding, not really. No, but in the beginning, God did create the earth. And in this earth, he created it completely perfect, beautiful, pure, it was, there was nothing wrong with it. No sin, no sadness. As like the book that I read to my boys, there was no badness, no sadness. It was, it was good. It was perfect. It was beautiful. But we see in, uh, in Genesis chapter 3 that sin enters into the world. And when sin enters into the world, it creates a separation between man and God. Now the reason for that is because God is so perfect, so holy, so pure that sin in him do not exist in the same area. It's like oil and water. They do not come together. He, it cannot, it is impossible for sin to exist in the presence of God. And so that created a separation. 
But what's beautiful about this, and I hope that we don't miss this because this is, uh, this is really important for us, not just for this passage, but for all of God's word. God's desire from the beginning was to live on earth with his people. His desire was to be here. He created the earth so that he could live in it. It says that he walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He wanted to be near to his people. This was to be his home with us. And so when that sin created that separation, it broke his heart and, it, and, and he wanted there to still be a way for him to be close to his people because he loved them. And so in his grace and in his mercy, he created what is uh, known as the sacrificial system. Now, um, what that means is that people needed to have their sins paid for. So instead of, of dying themselves, because dying, death was the, the penalty or the, the punishment for our sin that came out of disobeying God and that separation, instead of us receiving that, instead of us receiving that penalty of death, that penalty would be passed off to another living creature, a lamb, which would enable his people Uh, to be made right before God and have access to him again. So he established this system of animal sacrifice. Now, back to the high priest. The high priest's job, he was the one who was responsible for entering into the Holy of Holies, the only place where God's presence was accessible on earth at that time, and to bring the sacrifice of a lamb for himself first, to make himself clean so that he could even enter into the presence of God. And then a second sacrifice that was to be on behalf of the entire uh, people of God for all of their sins that have been committed. And he had to do it perfectly in this orderly fashion, otherwise he would be killed on the spot. Now, if you've ever been in a spot where you feel like ministry is hard, or ministry is challenging or difficult. Just thank the Lord you're not that guy. Because that guy had a way more difficult and a way more higher calling than any of us will experience here, right? Thank the Lord that we don't have to uh, be offering the sacrifice of lambs anymore. Amen. Anybody else excited about that? Thankful for that? So, having to slaughter a lamb, bring it into the manifest presence of God, making sure you stepped, you followed every step meticulously was a big deal. And even then, if that was followed perfectly, there was still a problem. Because although that uh, solution was temporarily sufficient to, to pass off the penalty of death from man to this lamb, the sin still remained. The sin, sin was still there. So every year, this sacrifice had to be made over and over and over again to continue to cover for the sins of mankind. And it, was, it made me ask the question as I was studying this, why, why would God institute or command an imperfect solution to a massive problem. Like, why did he build this plan with a weakness in it? And the reason for this is so beautiful. It's because he wanted from that moment to create a need and a desire in his people's hearts for Jesus. He wanted them to know that something bigger, something greater, something better had to happen, that there's nothing that they could ever do. He wanted them to feel that they were so inadequate to meet the standard of holiness, that something bigger had to happen, and that person was Jesus. You know, the, later on in Hebrews, the author says that the, the sacrificial system was a shadow of the good things to come. They were all pointing to God's final, once for all, decisive sacrifice for sins. They were foreshadowing the bloodshedding of Jesus. Now, we could have an entire series on that alone. Like, there is so much depth in the, about the, Jesus as our high priest. But I found this passage in Hebrews that really helps kind of capture it and sum it up for us. It's Hebrews 9, 12 through 14. It says, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will he purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus' authority as our great high priest is absolute but not just because he offered a perfect sacrifice, but because he was himself the perfect sacrifice. And we now, through that, have access to God and a hope in a future of being near to him for all eternity, and we can praise and worship God for that. Amen? Seeing the absolute authority of our great high priest should lead us to worship him. It, should, it also should allow us, as this verse in Hebrew says, it should allow us to be able to hold fast to our confession. And so, so what is that confession that we are to hold fast to? It is that Jesus is our hope. His once and for all sacrifice for our sins is our only hope. Lastly, check out this. Like, I, this is an absolute baller verse in Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. I love this. This is like one of my new, my new favorite verses. Hebrews 10, 10 through 14. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God, because it was done, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I mean, come on. That is fire, right? We, we thank the Lord for that. His authority as our great high priest is absolute. Now, you might be saying to yourself, like, Chris, I thought this message was about how Jesus was going to be my helper. And, like, this seems like a lot of theology to really, like, unpack and understand. And know I, I, what, I'm here to, like, learn how Jesus can help me in my need. What does all this have to do with that? And you're right. It is a lot of theology. And here's the deal, though. It has everything to do with Jesus being your help. Let, let me explain that for a second. It's extremely difficult for us to be close to somebody without really knowing who they are. So just imagine for a moment, like entering into a dating relationship with somebody that you might want to like spend the rest of your life with, but saying to them, you know, like, I, I'm not really interested. I don't really care much about where you came from or the circumstances that led you to me. I just want to know what you have for me right now. And how can you, like, I'm really intrigued by the ways that you can maybe meet me and my needs and, and, and help, like, be a good for me. But, like, the rest of your life, everything that led to this point, it's not really that important to me. I'm just more focused on what we have together. Like, would that go well? Anybody? Like, ladies, would you like that if a man pursued you that way? No, right? No, it does not work well. In the same way, how, uh, how could we expect to really understand and know Jesus without knowing who he is and where he came from, right? How can we draw near to somebody that we don't know? Honestly, I think this is one of the biggest reasons why I think we struggle to have any growth in our spiritual lives. Because in a world of quick fixes and life hacks and like, I've got to figure this out quickly. I've got to find a solution. I need help and I've got to go to YouTube and figure it out right away. Like we've lost the ability to really wrestle with our need for Jesus and to seek him, to study him, to know him, to revel in the beauty of who he is, to remind ourselves and to worship him for what he has already done for us and let that be even change the way we 
perspectively view our circumstances, right? We love to come to Jesus for help. And I think even as a, as a worship pastor, we, we love to sing songs about how Jesus is our help, right? Or like we, we, we praise him for the ways that he has met us in our need and we thank him for that. But there's a problem, we're missing something if we're primarily drawing near to Jesus to ask for deliverance from our, our situations and not praising him and thanking him for his already deliverance from our sins. This is one of the reasons why I'm so excited about uh, these studies that we've begun to offer in our church because it's going to give us an avenue to go deeper and to, to learn and to know more about Jesus and what he accomplished in us and through us so that we can draw near to him with confidence. If we, we can't confidently draw near to Jesus if we don't know him. John Piper said, if you try to skip the Old Testament <clears throat> and interpret Jesus within your own context first, without the biblical historical context and categories, you may make him a coach or a therapist or a good example or a guru or a mentor or a hero or a trailblazer. And there may be some truth in each of those, but they will not be as true and deep and authoritative, there's that word, and helpful as the categories that the Bible itself uses. We can't confidently draw it near to somebody that we don't know. And if we want to confidently draw near to Christ, it starts with knowing him with beholding him, with, with worshiping for who he is and, and what he's done for us and submitting under ourselves underneath his absolute authority that he has rightfully earned as our great high priest. This is why songs like Christ and Christ Crucified are going to forever be sung in our church. As long as I have the opportunity to influence that, we're going to continue to sing songs like that because we need those reminders. We need to be reminding of ourselves of the finished work of Jesus and what he's done for us and to let that drive us to worship him, to really know him for what, who he is and what he's done. So don't cheapen your understanding of who Jesus is by limiting your knowledge of him to your own contextual personal experience and neglect the centuries of history that he has preserved for us in his book to know him and to understand him more deeply. We can confidently draw near to Christ to access his help in our time of need because his authority as our great high priest is absolute. <clears throat> That's our first point. Secondly, his sympathy is authentic. Verse 15 of Hebrews chapter four, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So it's important for us to note, and uh, if you've got your Bible and a pen, I'm going to encourage you to write in there, but th that word tempted, the Greek word for that, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce because I'll do it wrong, uh, that word in my, ESV, in my ESV Bible here, it says tempted, but theologians and scholars say that it can also be translated as tested. So tempted as a way to, like, bring you down, but also tested as a way to build you up. And so both implications of that word are true here. So if your Bible says tempted, maybe write tested next to it. If it says tested, maybe write tempted next to it, because we want to make sure that we capture both of these ideas here. And we're going to walk through these um, in a moment to see just how Jesus is sympathetic with us in our testing and in our temptation. Now, Scripture only gives us a few examples <clears throat> where the word temptation was explicitly used to describe what was happening to Jesus in that moment, specifically uh, as he's in the desert, uh, in the wilderness, uh, before he's about to begin his, his earthly ministry. But if we believe Scripture to be true, then this verse explicitly says that he was tempted in every way that we are. Every way that we have been tempted, 
Jesus felt that, but without sinning. Think about that. Have you ever felt tempted to lie? Have you ever been tempted to tell a lie? Maybe Jesus, as he was standing in the court before Pilate and the religious leaders and being asked to give a testimony of his life, maybe in that moment, knowing that if he twisted the truth a little bit, it could preserve his life and preserve him from the brutal crucifixion. Do you think maybe he might have felt tempted to do that there? I, I know for sure I would have in that moment to preserve himself. Have you ever been tempted to covet, to desire something that isn't yours? You know, maybe Jesus, who uh, Scripture tells us, says he has had no place to lay his head. Maybe, as he was in the presence of Zacchaeus in his home, the rich tax collector, that maybe as he was looking around at the lavish lifestyle that Zacchaeus was living and all of the possessions that he had, maybe he felt tempted to covet or to desire what Zacchaeus had. Have you ever been tempted to lust? Maybe when Mary bent down and knelt over to wash Jesus' feet with her hair, kissing his feet, rubbing his feet with the oil that she anointed him with. Maybe in that moment, Jesus also felt that temptation. I don't know. Have you ever been tempted to be anxious? Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, is described as sweating drops of blood because he was wrestling so deeply with the gravity of enduring a brutal and painful, torturous death. Do you think that maybe in that moment he was tempted to worry or to be anxious about that? Probably more than any of us have ever experienced. Now I could go on and on. These are just a few examples from the stories that we have in Scripture. But I just want to remind you that we also, there's three decades of Jesus' life that are unaccounted for in Scripture. 30 years. So think about that. 30 years of living his life Think about the many times you've been tempted over the last 30 years if you've lived that long. Think about that. In every way, Jesus felt that. And honestly, this is my personal opinion or belief, but like I would think that if Satan knew that he could bring Jesus down, he would destroy all of God's plans. So he probably brought the full barrage of attack on Jesus in ways that we haven't experienced. So because of this, because he never once sinned, because he never once gave in, we know that he can be authentically sympathetic to us in our temptations. Now, you also might be saying, well, well, Chris, Jesus was fully God. And so, like, he had supernatural strength to endure that and supernatural power that I don't have. So did he even really, like, suffer in that or was he just able to automatically reject those temptations? And I would just say, yes, he was, he was fully God. He was, but he was also fully man. And the mystery of that, we won't ever probably be able to understand, and that's okay. But if we take scripture at its word, it says here that Jesus was tempted in every respect that you and I are, yet he never once sinned. And to take it a step further, I I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would be, have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. I love how he says this next part. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation actually means. 
the only complete realist. And this is why he is able to sympathize with us, because he does know. He knows more deeply and more intensely than you and I will ever know. And because of that, his heart is authentically postured in a sympathetic way towards you and to me. He's for us. That should give us a confidence to draw near to him when we are being tempted. But if we look at the other way that that word could be used, we see that Jesus was also tested in every way that was designed to build him up. So maybe you find yourself in that place this morning where like, you're like, man, I'm just like wanting to, uh, to be obedient or I'm, I'm enduring a very difficult cir- situation or circumstance that is stretching and growing my characters. Maybe not tempting me to sin, but it's just a really difficult place that I'm in right now. I'm being tested. This verse says that Jesus has authentic sympathy for you as well because he also was tested in every way. So let's con- consider some of these scenarios. Maybe you're here this morning have you, like, and you're feeling inadequate in the work that God has called you to do. You feel discouraged or inadequate in, in your work or in your ministry. In, in, at the end of John chapter 6, uh, there's this story where Jesus has just got done preaching about how he's the bread of life. And it says as he's finishing that message, many of his disciples who had been following him for a long time just turned away from him and walked away never to return again. Now, do you think that in that moment, Jesus was like discouraged by that a little bit to say like, man, I just poured out my heart and my life for you in this message and, and you've been following me and I upset you and now you're just gonna walk away from me? Do you think that that was discouraging a little bit for him? Do you think maybe he felt inadequate? Maybe you are a, a ministry leader in our church, like leading in a community group or uh, leading in student ministries or kids ministries, whatever. And you're like, man, it is really difficult to lead people sometimes. <laughs> people can be difficult and challenging and hard, and there's a lot of messiness there. Um, throughout the Gospels, there's three specific times where we see Jesus who lived with his disciples day in and day out for about three years, 12 other men walking around together, doing everything together. There's at least three situations that we know of where he had to break up a fight with them, right? Now, let's be real. Like, you get 12 guys together living together day in and day out, sleeping on who knows where and traveling around. There's probably way more fights than that, right? They were probably very difficult to deal with at times. I mean, we have plenty of testimonies of of Peter's personality, right? He's stubborn and like, like, we have to be real with ourselves. Do you think Jesus knows what it's like to lead difficult people? Do you think he knows what it's like to, to live among difficult people? Maybe uh, you're struggling to, to balance family and ministry or family and work, and, and you're really struggling with that work-life balance or, or ministry-life balance. We, we don't know a lot about Jesus' father, Joseph. Uh, there's not a lot said about him in Scripture. But what we do know uh, is, or what, what some theologians, I guess, have, have hypothesized or believed maybe through contextual clues, is that Jesus' father probably died before he actually began his earthly ministry. And so um, what that means is that Jesus, as the oldest son, was now responsible for caring for his mother, uh, which was the Jewish custom at that time, was to care for, the oldest son would be the one who would be the caretaker for the mother. And on the cross, we see evidence of this because Jesus hands off the care of his mother to the Apostle John. And he says, hey, like, this is your mother, take care of her. And what that implies is that throughout his entire earthly ministry, while he was um, leading a religious movement, teaching thousands of people, and, and traveling around just being a, a leader and a teacher, he was also the primary caretaker for his mother. Do you think he knows a little bit about the balance of, of, of those two different things and struggling with that? 
Lastly, maybe you're here this morning and you're just you're here experiencing discouragement or struggle in your desire to want to walk obediently into the calling that God has placed before you. Like, like you know the steps that you're supposed to take and they're right in front of you, but you're having trouble just being obedient and taking that step. Once again, if we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus essentially asking God the Father, like, is, is there any other way that we can do this? Like, I, I know that this is the plan that we agreed on, and I know that this is the only way to do it, but can we just, like, revisit it one more time? Is there any other way? Like, does it have to be this way? Do you think in that moment he was wrestling with being obedient? Maybe more than any of us have ever experienced, right? In the most beautiful example of perfect submission of all time, Jesus yields in that moment and says, not my will, but yours be done. He's been there. He knows. He's been through all the different situations that you find yourself in. He's been tempted in the ways that you have found yourself tempted. And he has authentic sympathy for you in those moments. And that should fuel our confidence to draw near to him in our time of need because we know that he can relate with you. Now, I want to be transparent and honest with you this morning. This, this point was um, incredibly convicting to me uh, personally because sympathizing with somebody in their weakness is something that I, I struggle with a lot. Um, sometimes I think I, I can see things too much in black and white. Like I see the solution and I rush to the solution and I miss the opportunity to really sit with somebody who's hurting or struggling and I rush to finding the solution of that or, or, and, and it can feel insensitive or calloused in that way. Um, also at other times, I'm just selfish. Like I, I, I have a desire to please myself and, and sometimes walking with somebody sympathetically who's in a place of hurt or need is, is hard work and, and I tend to just neglect that at times because I'd rather serve and please myself, right? This is a a challenge for me. Over the last couple of years, my wife, Lauren, has been um, battling and struggling with anxiety, different severities and different seasons. And I can tell you that there have been so many times where I have just absolutely dropped the ball in caring for my wife in that struggle. I have had a lack of sympathy. I've had a lack of understanding. And um, it's been honestly, at times, very discouraging for me as much as it's discouraging for her. It's been also discouraging for me as well in those moments. Um, But at the same time, I have been tremendously encouraged by the ways that I have seen her be an example to me in this, in the way that she rushes to Jesus to be her knees. She's actually said it before, like, I don't think she means it in a, in a, in a harsh or a cruel way, but she said, like, Chris, I don't, I don't need you. I, I have Jesus, and he can meet my needs in my, in my deepest needs. He can be the one there for me, and I'm drawing near to him in that time. And she's even told me that this verse, Hebrews 4.15, coupled with that picture of Jesus in the garden, has given her such a comfort in her moments of, of anxiety that he sees her and that he knows, and he's been there for her, and she, it leads her to draw near to him. But also, um, this example that she set for me has really been a model of Jesus for me. And um, as I am aware of my weakness increasingly of, of a lack of sympathy, it's driven me to a place where I know that I need to draw near to Jesus to be grown and transformed and shaped into more of the image of, his son, of, of Jesus to look more like him in my weakness as well too. And it's really a be- been a beautiful struggle 
um, seeing the way that God's taking these two imperfect people that are having their own independent struggles and the way that those come together and overlap and uh, being able to walk in faith together. And it's honestly, I think, a picture of what the body of Christ should be as well too, right? The way that we bear each other's burdens and care for each other in that way and lead each other to our, our, our great high priest who has an authentic sympathy for us and who wants to be there for us in those moments of need. And so I'm so thankful for her. I'm so thankful for her example and, her le- and her, even her leadership of me in that way, in those times of need. And so my question for you this morning is, what are you carrying this morning? <clears throat> what is your need? Like, what are the things that you are just heavy on your heart, constantly in your mind? What is heavy for you today? Where do you feel insufficient? Where do you struggle to withstand the temptations and the attacks of the enemy? You have a great high priest. And like that song that we sang earlier, you have a great high priest whose name is love. And he knows what you are wrestling with more deeply than you even know yourself. He has an authentic sympathy and mercy and grace available for you in your time of need. So because his authority is absolute, because his sympathy is available, or his his sympathy is authentic, you can confidently draw near to access his help in your time of need. Which leads us to the last point. I, I teased it out accidentally by missaying it. It's kind of been woven throughout this whole message. His generosity is available. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So since we have a great high priest with absolute authority who also is able to authentically sympathize with us in our weakness, the throne of God is not a throne of, con- a throne of condemnation. It's not a throne of shame. It's not a throne of guilt. It's a throne of grace. And we can approach it with confidence to access our high priest's help in our time of need. We can approach with confidence. How you approach something, how you approach a situation, reveals what you expect to find when you get there. I had a a mentor in college who used this illustration to to help bring this idea to life to me. So I'm just going to steal it, copy and paste it, and give him credit for it later because I love him. But um, he he tells this, this story of like, a, imagine being a, um, like a parent sleeping in your bed at night and at, at 2 a.m. your child comes into your room, little child, and is like, Dad, Dad, there's, I'm pretty sure there's a dragon under my bed. There's a dragon under my bed. And some of you are like, I don't have to imagine that. That happened last night. Or, or many times throughout the week if you're in my house. But they come into your room and they're like, man, Dad, I feel like there's a dragon under my bed. And so you kind of like get out of bed. You're like, okay, buddy, I'll go check. Dad, can you check? Just check and make sure. Okay, so you slowly kind of half awake, stumble into the room. Eyes aren't really fully open, and you just look under the bed. You're like, okay, no dragons, buddy. Rub his head. Good job. Go to sleep. Love you. Good night. Everything's fine. Go back to your bed. How you approached that situation revealed what you expected to not find in that situation, right? How we approach a situation reveals what we expect to find. Now, think about this. Uh, the next night, you're in your bed, 2 a.m., and you hear the crashing of a window breaking downstairs. You hear footsteps rummaging around your house. You hear drawers opening and closing in your kitchen or in your office. Now you're up. <laughs> now you're wide awake. You're like, what's going on here? You're awake and you're going to like start to, okay, I got I to gotta approach this situation a little differently. You're, you're probably looking around your room for, for like a baseball bat or we live in Michigan, some kind of a firearm or something that you can go down as you prepare to go down into the, to the room to, def- to ready to defend yourself, right? You're going to approach that situation a little bit differently, right? How you approach reveals what you expected to find when you get there. 
And so my question for you this morning is how are you approaching God for help in your time of need? Are you approaching with a confidence of somebody who's ready to receive the mercy and grace that is available to you? Or are you approaching with fear and trembling as someone who's expecting punishment? I think if we're honest, uh, some of us in here might even say, well, I'm not really approaching at all. You know, like some of us might say, you know, I don't, I, I know I have a need, but it's, it's not that bad. Like I can handle it myself. I'm strong enough. I, I, can, I can handle my own needs. I don't need God's help for that. What does that approach reveal about what you expect to find from God? That your ability to handle your need and your situation is better than the supernatural help that he has to offer you? That you are more powerful and more capable than he is? Maybe, maybe some of us in the room this morning aren't approaching at all because we know that we have a need, but we just don't want to deal with it. And so it's easier to ignore it or to distract ourselves with the different pleasures of the world or drown ourselves in the different things that are available to us, the different ways that, as Pastor Brian talked about last week, the different ways we can be seduced by the world. And we just kind of push it away and like, I don't, I'm not going to deal with that. What does that approach reveal about what you expect to find from God? That being near to him and living in the mercy and grace that he offers is actually less fulfilling than the things that are available to you in the world? Maybe that um, what he has to offer you isn't actually good enough for you. Some of us, on the other hand, are, are scared to even approach him at all. Because we are so deeply aware of our need. And at the same time, we are so deeply aware of our sin. And that sin that has created a separation between us and God has led us to believe that, that, we, that God is upset with us. He's angry with us and we feel guilty. We feel shameful. We feel uh, like, like, there's, like he doesn't even want us to be near him. We feel this timidness in our heart to approach him. So we either don't come at all or we come with our head down, tail between our legs, ashamed and, and timid. What does that approach reveal about what you expect to find from God? Does that sound like somebody who is expecting to be met with God's mercy and his grace? Or do we expect to be punished? Or do we expect abandonment or being rejected because we feel like we don't deserve God's mercy and grace? If that's you this morning, I have some news for you, and that is that you are exactly right. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. None of us deserve the mercy and grace that he has available to us. But that's why he calls it a throne of grace. God still offers it anyways. That's what makes it a throne of grace. God's throne of grace says, yes, you have a need, but you don't need to meet it yourself. I've already done that for you. Come, let me help you. God's throne of grace says, yes, you have a need, but you don't need to numb it. You don't need to distract yourselves. What I have is to offer you is more fulfilling than anything that you could ever find in this life. Come to me and taste my goodness. God's throne of grace says, yes, you have a need, but you don't need to be paralyzed by your guilt and your shame because I am for you and I love you. Come to me and receive the mercy and grace that I have ready and available for you. Because his authority as your great high priest is absolute, because his sympathy for you <clears throat> in your need is authentic, and because his generous offering of mercy is available to you, we can approach with confidence to access his help in our time of need. Now, I could, at this point, end the message 
and it would be sufficient, right? There's a lot of encouragement in what we've talked about today. There's a lot of, um, of truth that we can take home and be encouraged by. But I want to take it one step further for us this morning. And, and we talked earlier about Jesus as our high priest. And I want to just apply that to our current <clears throat> situation, our current reality on this side of the cross. You know, when Jesus, right before he ascended into heaven, um, as he finished up his time on earth, he, he makes a promise to his disciples. And he says, you will receive power and then you will go and be my, my witnesses, right? Remember that? And then in Acts 2, we see the disciples gathered and we see um, this, this power come to them. And it's like this, it's this rushing of wind and fire that, that is kind of like symbolic in a lot of ways of the Old Testament, God's presence coming and filling the temple when the high priest would offer up the sacrifice. It's, a, it's very symbolic in that moment that when God's presence is transferred to the disciples, it's, it's meant to be a, a picture of something for us. And we, we, we really do not want to miss this. God's heavenly temple presence, which up until that moment, had only been accessible by the high priest in the Holy of Holies and then was transferred to Jesus and embodied in Jesus in his life on earth. When he left to go to heaven, he left that presence and it was transferred to us. It was transferred to you and to me. And so don't miss what's happening here. If you've received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you are now an embodiment of his life and his sacrifice and his presence here on this earth. You are his temple, but you're not just his temple. Look at what 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, as you come to him, as you draw near, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy, what? Priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what Peter is saying here is that when God sent his presence and the power of his spirit to indwell in his people, the office or the role of priest was transferred to us. We are a holy priesthood. So what does that mean for you and for me? That means that you're a priest. You're a priest. And you have priestly responsibilities the primary of those responsibilities is to offer up a spiritual sacrifice, just like the high priest did before. Our responsibility as a priest in the royal priesthood, the holy priesthood, is to continue to offer sacrifice. So does that mean that we should get a bunch of lambs ready and like corral them together? No, no, right? Thank the Lord for that. Praise God for that. Because Jesus' blood was enough and it covered all of our sins, right? We don't have to do that. So what is our sacrifice? Look at what Romans 12.1, what Paul says in this passage, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, <clears throat> holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So just because Jesus put an end to the sacrificial system does not mean that sacrifices should stop altogether, right? We are priests now. You're a priest. I'm a priest. And a priest's job is to make sacrifices, Except our sacrifice isn't offered through death, but in our lives. And instead of the shedding of blood, God is maybe calling us to shed other things like our, our, our time, to shed our, pri our priorities, our comfort, because it has to cost us something, otherwise it's not a sacrifice. See, you and I, we're priests now. We're not, we're not congregants. We're not consumers, we're shepherds, 
We're caretakers, we're stewards, we're priests, and we have priestly responsibilities. And so I want you to hear my heart and hopefully the, the rep, represented by the heart of our staff that we are so encouraged by so many of you stepping up and living like priests and stepping out and, and making your lives a living sacrifice before the Lord and giving up your time, giving up your comfort to serve Him in so many ways. We've been so encouraged by that. And I want you to know if that's you, that God sees you and He is so pleased with you and He loves that. But for some of us, if this is your church home and if you're showing up here week in and week out and, and for whatever reason are, are maybe still sitting on the sideline or dragging your feet to get involved, I, I, I want you to hear my heart in this. I do not want you to feel condemnation at all. That is not God's heart for you. I want you to feel empowered by this truth. I want you to feel encouraged by this truth that God has equipped you and he's called you to be a priest who has a sacrifice to offer this body and to be a part of what he is doing here as his holy priesthood. We would love nothing more than the opportunity to help you live into that priestly calling if that's you today. And so um, maybe you're hearing that and you're still a little like, you know, I don't, I don't know, Chris, that feels a little bit heavy for me. Like serving in kids or student ministries, like shepherding and caring for the next generation like a priest. Yeah, I don't know. I can't keep up with the youth. I'm old. Like I can't do that. What do I even have to offer them? I feel weak. Or, or reaching out maybe to somebody in need to pray for them or, or to care for them, to offer counsel to them, maybe to rally people around them if there's a very real physical need that you can help meet. Man, that's, that sounds kind of like uncomfortable. I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I have anything to offer anybody in that way. Leading a community group, caring for others like a shepherd, man, that's intimidating to me. Like I, I don't, I don't, I'm still struggling to care for my own soul, let alone being able to care for the souls of other people around me. I don't, I feel weak. I feel inexperienced. I don't think that I could do that. And, and besides, isn't, isn't caring for the soul of another person the responsibility of the pastor or, or the priest? It is. It is. And God's called you to that. And my encouragement to you this morning is that you don't have to do it alone. We would love to walk alongside of you and to help you and to encourage you and to equip you into that in so many ways. But more than that, you can draw near with confidence to Jesus Christ, your great high priest, to access his help in your time of need. When you are weak, he is strong. In your insufficiencies, he is sufficient. He is leading you as your good shepherd to care for his flock in ways that only you have been gifted to do. So you can draw near to your good shepherd, to your high priest for his help because his authority is absolute, because his sympathy is authentic and because his generosity, his mercy and grace is available to you. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we come before you as a people who are so aware of our need. And Jesus, you have been so faithful as our example in this the way that you gave up yourself as a sacrifice uh, for the good of, of all of us, Lord. And we praise you for that, Jesus. We, we worship you. We adore you for who you are and what you accomplished for us. But God, I, I believe also that you are calling us to step into this role and into this, um, this opportunity to live as priests in this community. And so God, I believe that even this morning, even right now, you might be laying on somebody's heart the reality of what that means for them. And I pray that you would give them such a confidence that you are with them, that you see them, that you know them in their fear, in their insecurity, 
that you are right there with them, God. You have authentic sympathy for them. And you have mercy and grace that is abounding and available for us to access in our time of need. So Jesus, would you continue to lead us forward? Would you be our example as we seek to live as your priests in this world who so desperately needs to know you, God? We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.